Thank you very much. My name is Matt, and I get to open up God's Word here in a moment. We are in the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter, starting at verse 21. So find your Bible, pick it up, and uh, find verse 21. If you're new to the Bible, there's a table of contents. The front of the Bible tells you how to find the Gospel of Mark, and then you work your way through the book by using the big numbers first, which are called chapters, and the little numbers are called verses. So chapter 5, verse, small number 21. As you go there, just a couple of announcements. Um, as of last week, um, we, our team that is going to Ukraine did get in all the money that we were hoping to raise. So thank you for your generosity. If you threw in money in the box this morning because you were wondering, uh, we still might spend it or we'll save it for a future trip, but that's an exciting thing. And then if some of you guys asked when we're leaving, um, if you want, we're going to meet here in the church parking lot around 12.30 on Wednesday, and we'll load all of our stuff, and uh, we're driving to O'Hare. Um, so if you, we'll meet 12.30, try to leave close to 1. If you want to come, pray, give high fives during your lunch break, come on over. We'd love to have you there. Uh, the other thing I wanted to let you know is uh, uh, at 11 o'clock, we're having a Q&A. Uh, for seventh, seventh graders through adults during the Sunday school hour. And so if you have any questions, you can text those questions or bring them to the time. Um, I don't have my phone on me, so you can text away. Uh, there will be no vibrating here happening or anything like that to distract me. Um, but uh, any question? And then the, the younger kids, they're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine. What is Ukraine? What's the history of Ukraine? Why, what, what kind of works are God doing in Ukraine? And so they'll be, so parents, ask your kids questions about Ukraine after Sunday school. So let me pray. We'll dig in. Father in heaven, your love is amazing. And yet uh, we hear Paul praying that we would have a greater understanding of God's love, how the depth and breadth, uh, just how amazing the love of God is in Christ Jesus. To get our minds around that will take eternity and we will be praising you along the way. And so we pray, God, that as we open up your word this morning, you would open our eyes to the beautiful things in your word, that we would stand in wonder, that we would not just have our heads filled with knowledge, but we would have our hearts warmed in affection for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Help us in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so you heard the story about the time one night when I was about eight years old, I walked out of my Taekwondo practice. This was in Altoona, Iowa. We did it at Southeast Polk High School. Those of you guys who like details. And I walk out in the dark of night, and my mom is nowhere to be seen. And so my little eight-year-old chest starts doing one of those jobs where your heart race starts racing. And I wait, and I wait. Where was she? Does she care about me? How could she not be here? And so in tears, I walk back into the high school, and there's some adults from the class there, and what's the matter? My mom's not here. And so they give me 35 cents so I can use a pay phone. And I, I call home, and my dad says, your mom left a half hour ago. She's there. And so we go back outside, and the adults are you know, holding this little eight-year-old steady. And lo and behold, my mom was there. To this day, she wasn't there, then she was there. But she says she was there. 
And here's the thing. I should have believed that mom cared about me, but I doubted. I, should, I shouldn't have doubted. My unbelief was wrong. Her presence was real, but my perspective was off. It turns out that unbelief is not always the best approach to life. Now, I want to read to you verses 21 through 36 to get us started in Mark chapter 5. We're going to talk about faith today. We're going to talk about belief. And so we read in this story, verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat, the other side of the lake of Galilee, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Verse 22, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, he came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he, he pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come, put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now at once Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him. And he turned in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? <laughs> you see the people crowding around you, against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. So last week I read a 2015 article by Professor Paul Bloom of Yale University. I read this in the Atlantic. Now in it, this is what Paul Bloom writes. Scientific practices, observation and experiments, the development of falsifiable hypotheses, the relentless questioning of established views have proven uniquely powerful in revealing the surprising underlying structure of the world we live in, including subatomic particles, the role of germs and the spread of disease, and the neural basis of mental life. Religion has no equivalent record of discovering hidden truths. Paul Blue, religion has no equivalent record of discovering hidden truths. Uh, people who have highly shaped the 20th and 21st century have been Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx, and they believed all sorts of religious beliefs lacked any 
warrant. They denied the ability to hold rational beliefs of any religious sort. And so both promoted an atheistic worldview as the only way to actually understand the world. Now, I personally believe there shouldn't be such a conflict between science and religion uh, because I, like most Christians, don't think there's a conflict. Science offers certain avenues of pursuing truth, but to undermine religion and say that there's no record of discovering truth, I don't think it's valid. Because the, the issue at hand is like, what kind of truth can religion discover? You know, can belief provide true knowledge? For example, things that science can do. Science, I don't think, can determine if my wife loves me. This is not a realm of knowledge for which science can confirm or deny. But if I trust Carrie with my secrets, if I offer my body and soul to her in intimacy and fidelity for decades, if I put my faith in her, the truth of her love will either be proven or disproven. It's a realm of knowledge that science can't touch, and yet a realm of knowledge that's really important. Now, we're not going to be able to address all manner of religious knowledge today, so we're just going to focus on this issue of faith in Jesus. That's the point of this text. I think the verse I read there at the end is, a, is kind of a, a crucial key point in this text when Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. If we come to have belief in Jesus, and we begin to believe who Jesus is and what he says about himself and what we read about his life and his death and his resurrection, I do believe that will be the beginning of beginning to trust all manner of religious knowledge that you find in Scripture, or what one writer might say, the life, the universe, and everything here in the Scriptures. So the term that we're going to focus on is the word trust or belief. Uh, put your to put your faith in someone, to give someone your confidence. And I feel one of the better definitions that have come out over the years comes from a 16th century Protestant reformer by the name of John Calvin. Here's his definition of faith. What does he say faith is? He defines faith as that firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's a little highfalutin, but it's still good. <laughs> what is faith? Faith is this firm and sure confidence in God's benevolence, God's love toward us, His good towards us. And it doesn't come out of thin air. It's founded, it's built upon truth, freely promised in Christ, and yet anything that's truly true does not stay in the head. It should impact the heart. If my wife loves me truly, and she does, it makes me a little giddy inside. Still, our honeymoon is not over yet. That's Calvin's definition. Compare this definition to that of uh, what Richard Dawkins, some of you know Richard Dawkins, famous Oxford professor, a biological evolutionist who is strongly opposed to religion of any sorts. 
This is what he had to say about faith in a speech before the Edinburgh International Science Festival in the spring of 1992. Dawkins says, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, lack of evidence. So who's right? 16th century John Calvin or the 20th and 21st century Richard Dawkins? Well, let's look what Mark has given us in chapter 5 here and see, Lord willing, I hope for us, that faith is a firm and certain knowledge and not a great cop-out. So let's look at what happens. Let's just watch the, uh, the story play out. So if you go back to verse 21, it says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. So we looked at this story last week that Jesus, well, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus got in a boat and, uh, well, he sent his disciples in the boat. Later he showed up. Or no, he slept in the boat in Mark 5. Excuse me. Uh, so the, uh, in, at the end of uh, Mark 4, they cross over by boat. They make it through this dangerous storm. And what they cross over to is a region where it's primarily Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And there last week we saw that he encountered the demon-possessed man possessed by a legion. And Jesus freed that man. And in the process of freeing that man, the city said, Jesus, you get out of here. And so it says Jesus leaves that area. He gets in a boat and he comes back to the other side. Now when it says he's coming back to the other side, he's coming back to his ministry center. He's coming back to the area of Capernaum. Most of the Gospel of Mark has recorded what Jesus has been doing in Capernaum. It says that when Jesus comes back to this main ministry area where he's done his primary teaching, his primary miracles, in verse 22, it says one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, he came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now Jairus may have been in the synagogue one day when Jesus cast out a demon-possessed man in a synagogue in that city. Certainly would have heard about it. He would have heard about the many miracles. Verse 23, Jairus pleads earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jairus may have seen and he is certainly aware of Jesus' healing paralysis, leprosy, and those possessed by demons in his area. In fact, when he did it one night, where it talks about him doing it at Simon Simon Peter's mother-in-law house, he did it all night. Every single disease and illness that came, Jesus healed for a whole night. And if you watch Jesus heal people, it doesn't take. At the end of the Gospel of John, John records this about Jesus' ministry. John 21, 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. All that to say, I believe, Jairus has good reason and past evidence to seek Jesus' aid. Contrary to Dawkins, I would say, does Jairus lack evidence to plead for such a man to heal his daughter? 
how many healings does someone have to do for someone in their mind to entertain the idea maybe he can heal my daughter? Look what happens next. Verse 24, Jesus in his mercy goes with Jairus. And there's this large crowd following him. Why is there a large crowd following him? Because they want to see a miracle. They want to see Jesus do something else marvelous. Wherever Jesus spent a little bit of time, he got a crowd. Why? Because what he was doing was powerful and amazing. And you know what? His enemies never denied that he did miracles. What his enemies said is he does miracles by the power of the enemy. So even his enemies didn't deny Jesus' miraculous power. They just pointed to a dangerous source. And so the crowd is around them. And who is in the crowd? Well, it wasn't just Jairus hoping for his daughter to be healed. There was a woman herself who had been suffering for 12 years with some sort of bleeding disorder. And, like, I mean, this doesn't just happen in the 21st century where you go from doctor to doctor to doctor. Maybe there's a doctor who can heal me. And she paid and she's penniless and she's got nothing left but her bleeding. And she goes to Jesus. But Jairus, this is, this is where this story is so interesting, is the comparison between Jairus and this woman. Jairus is named. The woman goes unnamed. Jairus has a place of prominence, one of the rulers of the synagogue. The bleeding woman would have been both a social and religious outcast. Her bleeding would have prevented her to, be, to participate in things in the temple or in the synagogue. She would, have, she would avoid others because if she, if she were to touch them, they too would then be unable to participate in religious, worth, re, religious worship. Jairus has wealth. The woman is penniless, but they're equally desperate. And so they both come. Jairus went to the front. The woman comes from behind. But again, is her faith any less defensible than Jairus's? If she's been bleeding for 12 years and been going to doctors for 12 years, I suspect some of the people who are now healed were some of the people that had been waiting to see the same doctors. And she knows of people being healed, and she wants to be healed. And so she puts together this scenario, okay, Jesus heals people. I'm going to sneak up. I'm going to touch his clothes. And so I want to pause a moment here because this is interesting and talk about um, this intersection between faith and superstition. Because this way this we reads is the woman's intentions are not purely on the personal work of Jesus as Lord and Savior. She's come up with this idea that he's some sort of traveling miracle man, and uh, let's go touch him. So first, what I want us to do is to not shame those whose faith is not 100% pure. I believe Scripture will say that superstition is not good. We should teach against it. God is opposed to any sort of mediums that could get in the way of between God and his people. Right? That's why there's the second commandment. We don't make idols or images this includes things like prayer mats and prayer beads. And yet, we see God, we see Jesus extend grace to a woman whose faith is not 100% pure. 
Because God is gracious. I think a lot of times we think like we got to get our motives 100% pure before we can approach Jesus. Jesus takes this woman and all of her weird mysticism, superstition, and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. I love that. She might not have known how it really works, but she knew that it at least works through Jesus. And so she goes to Jesus. Verse 29, it says, immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt it in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Can you get your mind around that? 12 years of suffering. And she knew it at that touch. Well, and then this, I mean, it's almost hilarious. So at once, Jesus realizes, whoa, power's gone out of my body. And he looks around, hey, who touched me? And the disciples, like, they're kind of like almost offended. Uh, Jesus, uh, everybody's touching you. You're, you have a crowd. No, no, Jesus like, no, no, no. Who touched me? And the woman, did you catch it? She's scared. Why is she scared? I don't know. And so I'm, there's always got to be danger when it's not in the text. But maybe she thinks the religious teacher is going to say, why, you unclean woman, did you touch me? But she's scared. And yet she tells him the whole truth. Well, I thought if I touched you, and like, maybe I'd be well. And so I planned this, and I saw the crowds, and I followed. So I snuck up, and I touched you. And then Jesus just, you know, I don't know. I have a sense that Jesus maybe looks stern, but little by little, you know, big grin. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So though the woman, the woman went to Jesus for something, Jesus made sure this ended with him having some one. He invites her into a relationship. What an intimate word, daughter daughter. For my reading, Jesus calls two people daughter in the New Testament. The bleeding woman of 12 years, and by the end of this chapter, the dead girl who's 12 years old. Daughter, your faith made you, has healed you. Go in peace from your suffering. He's inviting her into the family. He's saying your suffering is done. You have this new peace. There's this new relationship too. Jesus isn't going to let this thing end with just a, a quick healing. No, no, no. He wants to leave this in a relationship of discipleship and love and obedience. That's how he leaves it. Notice too that Jesus' immense willingness to dispense grace and mercy means that with a, meal, a mere touch, healing just oozes from him. I think sometimes we get in our mind that God is some sort of cruel father holding back on us, some sort of stingy Scrooge in the skies. God will never give me stuff. And yet Jesus taught us the father loves to give his children good gifts. And then we know that Jesus is here so that we might know the father. And where Jesus goes, he gladly dispenses good gifts. It just oozes out of him. A Notre Dame professor of philosophy by the name of Alvin Plantica, he's got this profound little book entitled Knowledge and Christian Belief from 2015. 
Look at what Plantinga has to say about faith. He says this. Faith is initially and fundamentally practical. It is a knowledge of good news and of its application to me and what I must do to receive the benefits it proclaims. You see this played out in this woman. Faith is practical. I see the man who has been healing people. I believe he might do it for me. And so she goes based on what she's heard and she touches and it's applied. She experiences the benefit. Now, for those of us kind of on this side of Jesus' life, this side of Jesus' death, this side of Jesus' resurrection, every person who's a true Christian has approached Jesus similarly. They've evaluated the evidence. They've heard the rumors. They've seen other people's lives impacted. They've read the eyewitnesses' accounts in Scripture. They've read about the martyrs. And then based on evidence and warrants, they put their faith in a Je- this Jesus and says, say, they say, save me, heal me, forgive me. Like you've done all these others I offer myself. Think about it. Who else can you trust your life and your death with except the only one who has ever conquered death? Confucius, Confucius, dead. Mohammed, dead. Every single Dalai Lama, except the one still living, dead. And so who do we go to to deal with this practical reality of sin, guilt, death, hell, judgment? The only one who's ever conquered it and come out on the other side and said, if you believe in me, you will never die. Let's keep mining chapter 5. Verse 35, right? So you get this amazing scene. Um, This woman is healed. The story has slowed down. The crowd has slowed down, and there's one guy in the crowd that is not happy that we've had this great slowdown, the man whose daughter is dying. (laughs) Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, so you get a sense, while he's talking to the woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, your daughter's dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? And so you can kind of flip back into the Gospel of Mark. Mark's been healing people with impure spirits. He heals many. Uh, He heals leprosy. Let's see. He calls disciples. He helps the, the, the diseased person. Wait a minute. This guy can't stop death. He hasn't yet. So, I mean, yes, Jesus is powerful. Yes, he's done some really neat stuff in the city. But, you know, the daughter's dead now. That's, what, that's where he's at. And Jesus, verse 36, overhearing what they said, he told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now, verse 36 is one of those verses that can be very easily misapplied and very easily misunderstood. 
Uh, atheists like Richard Dawkins misunderstand this, but so do many tele- televangelists like Benny Hinn misunderstand this. Let's start by talking about what does Jesus mean when he says, don't be afraid, just believe. First, he's not teaching that if we believe, everything will always work out like we have decided things should work out. Some of you have read the story of Corey Tenboom in a book called The Hiding Place about her experience in a Nazi concentration camp with her sister Betsy. Betsy was a woman full of faith and full of joy and full of confidence and sure confidence in the goodness of God. And Betsy dies in December 16, 1944 in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Betsy feared God, believed in God. People marveled at her faith and she died. She was not released. And so you cannot just name and claim what you want in the name of Jesus. Just because you want something and just because you know Jesus can do all things doesn't mean he will do the one thing you want above all. And so I warn you, beware of listening to any preacher who says your faith is the key to everything, whether it's healing or health or happiness. So your difficulties in high school may continue. Your friend might not get well, and your marriage may still suffer. When Johnny Erickson Tata came to grips that God had chosen not to heal her of quadriplegia, she had to ask deeper questions about what Jesus does grant by faith. And these are some of her words. She said, I learned that the core of Christ's plan is to rescue us from sin. Our physical aches and pains and broken relationships aren't his ultimate focus. He cares deeply about these things, but there's symptoms of the chief problem in this fallen world. God's goal is not to make us comfortable. He wants to teach us to hate our transgressions as he grows our love for him. Johnny goes on to say, does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purge sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer, and a hunger for his word. So faith is not name it and claim it, but rather an invitation to trust that God loves us and has a plan to forgive sin and one day restore the broken world. But so too, Jesus is not saying to those like Richard Dawkins who suggest otherwise, Jesus is not saying that we can make untrue things true by our faith. We do not make untrue things truth by our faith. My daughter desperately wants to ride a unicorn. She's not here. She went to children's church. So I, I can't make unicorns come into being by my faith. Some fool had the audacity to like put this thing on like a horn. And to this day, I'm like, it was, it was a doctored picture, dear. There's no unicorns. Our faith doesn't make untrue things true. We can't will things into being that don't have being. 
Faith does not mean you take fables and folk stories as a fact like your botany's book's explanation of photosynthesis. Let me give you Calvin's definition again of faith. He says, faith is the firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promised in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So Jairus, at that moment, is not supposed to believe in something that isn't true. He is supposed to believe in Jesus, who is true. Jairus, and now us, and now us are asked to trust Jesus as a real person, but more than just a real person. Jesus, by trusting in Jesus as the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one who conquered sin, death, and hell, and rose again three days later, we're saying that Jesus has the resources or we can put it this way, he has greater resources than what the mere physical world offers. He truly is out of this world, and yet in this world. And this is, again, where I think science can sometimes go wrong because science can only evaluate properties in this physical world. But what if the physical world is not all there is? What if there are resources and powers at play in this world? And that's what Christianity says. We inhabit this visible world and and an invisible world that are interacting, not in a way that can be retested in a lab, but real interaction nonetheless. And so this is why Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't be afraid, you can trust me. The physical circumstances of your daughter are not the final world because I have powers beyond this physical world. And then he says, let's go. And so they go. They start out and they go on a walk. Verse 37, it says, Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Back then in that culture, you'd actually hire lamenters if you didn't have them. That was part of the healing funeral process. And so they've already, she's been dead long enough. They got mourners and they're crying. And he went in and he said to them, why all this commotion? Why all this wailing? child's not dead but asleep and so they laugh at jesus so he pushes them all out and he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and he went in where the child was and he took her by the hand and he said to her talitha kum which means little girl i say to you get up and immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around and she was 12 years old and at this they were completely astonished so he gave strict orders not to tell anyone. <laughs> Don't let anyone know about this. Told her, give her something to eat. Jesus is just so practical. Give her something to eat. So Jesus has authority over disease and over death. Both of these females are given fresh starts. Both are called daughter, received as little girl, little daughter. But now, this is the only, they both know the power of God. Well, I want you to realize that that is a real knowledge. Contrary to what Paul Bloom wrote, these are truths that were hidden that are now revealed in the lives of these two people. So what about us? Are we where Paul Bloom puts us, that religion has no equivalent record of discovering hidden truths? Is Dawkins correct? That faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade 
the need to think and evaluate evidence. Again, let me explain the Christian alternative. Faith is the knowledge and confidence that what God has said in his word, conveyed through his promises, and displayed through the ministry of Jesus Christ, makes the most sense of the evidence. Faith is coming awake to the reality of sin and death and hell and saying, no, that's right. Evil is real. Jesus really was who he said he was. It's the best explanation of the evidence and the only hope for me. And what happens in the life of a Christian, when you get to that point of faith, it doesn't feel like a leap in the dark. It feels like a sure, wide-open decision to enter the light. What else would you do? It's, it's saying this works. This only works. It's realizing God has granted us knowledge and truth that a scientist's lab can't observe or study. Science can't prove Jesus' divinity. You cannot retest the resurrection of Jesus. It was a one-time event, just like the beginning of the universe. But we preach Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world, the best explanation of all the details, and that he is our only hope in life and death. But let me go back to this. Such a discovery of such truth cannot be looked at without emotion or passion. I don't want any robot Christians down with the robot Christian. So Alvin Plantinga, we'll use him again. He's a philosophy professor. And this is what he says about the truth of Jesus. He says this, the person with faith not only believes the central claims of the Christian faith, she or he finds the whole scheme of salvation enormously attractive, delightful, moving, a source of amazed wonderment. This isn't detached realization. This is effective realization. This is my delight. This is my joy. When it dawned on me that this girl I was dating loved me, like I didn't have to eat for like a week. But coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus even said this, those, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry again. That's, he's talking that kind of language of love. Like, you eat, you know me. I will supply your soul with something so satisfying the world can't touch it. So Jesus instructs us, do not be afraid, only believe. I want to give four thoughts of application, and then we'll move to the Lord's Supper. First, to the Christian who loves Jesus deeply, and yet often feels ashamed because of your lack of faith, hear this. Jesus died for you before you ever believed in him at all. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The amount of our faith is not as important as the person in, to whom we trust, in whom we trust. My kids, when they were little, were afraid that when I threw them up in the air that I would lack strength or commitment to catch them. But I was strong enough, and I was committed to them enough. And friends, we're God's kids, and he is strong, and he is committed. The bleeding woman approached Jesus, and healing came out from his person. Her approach had doubts, superstition, fear, and all sorts of wrong beliefs and emotions. But Jesus was pleased to heal her and welcome her into his family. So, brother, sister Christian, don't leave here today assessing where your faith is on a scale of 1 to 10. Please don't do that. 
Rather, look to Jesus and approach him with whatever amount of faith that you have, and you will not be disappointed. Also, to those who are struggling with some of the doubts that Richard Dawkins has presented, that faith is a great cop-out, to those who are like Karl Marx, who said religion is the opiate of the masses, my request would just be to say, would you give the New Testament a fair reading? On occasion, people say they reject Jesus, and then I ask them what Jesus they reject, and it's the things that they've learned about Jesus from Jimmy Fallon. I would encourage you to let Matthew and Mark and Luke and John introduce you to the Jesus of Scripture. The central claim of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and that he alone can bring you into a saving relationship with God the Father. We believe he has authority, he grants peace, he heals, he saves. And so approach the text, because we believe that God has been gracious up to you till now, and yet there will be a time and a place where you'll have your encounter with Jesus, and will you trust him and submit your life to him? I'll say one quick word, too, as we were talking a little bit about this woman who had some mixed superstitious belief. And so I just want to say to those who kind of dabble in multiple religions, um, and what's tempting is you like Jesus for forgiveness, Confucianism for your understanding of government, and maybe Hinduism and yoga for some measure of peace and nirvana, and maybe some drugs for some up or something like that. Um, Jesus wants everything from you, that he is your all, and to not mix, but to follow solely. And so I would encourage you to talk with another Christian about some of the things you're dabbling in, because it's dangerous. It will not lead you to quiet waters. It will not lead you to green pastures. Jesus is the only one who does that. So last but not least, uh, to those who uh, grow cynical like me sometimes, but Right now, you are in a really cynical season, and some of the stuff about Jesus healing uh, a diseased woman and a dead girl, and last week we talked about demons. Um, I'm going to give you one verse and one exhortation. The verse is Hebrews 11:6 that says, "And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists, and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him." So cynical Christian, this is my encouragement to you this week. I want you to pray for that one thing that you have been too cynical to pray about. Go back again with whatever amount of faith you have. If on a scale of 1 to 10, it's 0.01. Take that much faith and pray that thing that's been so hard to pray because you doubt God. You don't have a sure and certain confidence in his benevolence anymore. Your prayer and faith might be weak, but nonetheless, it pleases God. And if God answers that prayer, would you please come and tell us? And if God doesn't answer that prayer, would you keep pressing close to Jesus, who is our only hope in life and death? Let's pray. Father, we all wrestle with faith and unbelief. I think of the father who wanted his son to be uh, cured from some demonic possession, and he had to say, I believe, but help my unbelief. And if we're all honest, I think we come today like that. We believe, but help our unbelief.
Once again, would you make the truths of who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross more amazing in our hearts? Would it stir delight and joy and peace and satisfaction? I pray for those who are struggling with some issue or issues where it's even hard to pray or talk to God about those things anymore. I pray that they would come with whatever faith that they have and lay it at your feet. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.